All right, welcome into another episode of Mythic Existence, a weekly podcast about folklore, mythology, and spirituality. Today's episode is about monster theory, a theoretical framework for evaluating culture by reading their monsters. Among the lessons that can be learned from this hermeneutic is that monsters are created rather than being born as one, that they themselves are a historical shapeshifter, changing from one decade to the next, and that they are often used to reinforce cultural norms. Settle in, this is going to be another great episode of Mythic Existence. So monster theory really got its start by Jeffrey Jerome Cohen's essay, Monster Culture, Seven Theses. This was in the late 90s when it came about, and recently Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock compiled a book called The Monster Theory Reader, which was a collection of essays by by academics and monster theorists that really kind of cemented this theoretical framework. And essentially what monster theory does is it gives us a method of reading cultures from the monsters they engender. So in monster theory, you take a look at a monster and the particular time and place it arose from, and you attempt to see what it's saying about the assumptions and the way that that culture works. And one of the main concepts that monster theory is built upon is Foucault's archaeology of ideas. And what Foucault would do is he would look back through history and look at cultural assumptions to evaluate how we look at ourselves. And that's exactly what monster theory does. It You can really look at any time. I mean, monster theory can go back and look at, you know, medieval depictions or contemporary horror movies to see what those things are saying about the culture and it causes us to reevaluate how we look at the world essentially so there's a lot of use in monster theory and it incorporates a lot of other theories i mean marxist theory critical race theory queer and queer and gender studies all that kind of stuff so i'm going to go through and i'm going to go over the seven theses that Cohen basically enumerated, and then I'll hit on some of the bigger points of some of the other essays that are in the Monster Theory Reader, and I'm just going to introduce sort of some of the bigger ideas that are present in Monster Theory, but we'll start off with Cohen's seven theses. And the first thesis is that the monster's body is a cultural body. So the monster embodies the fears, anxieties, and desires, as well as the fantasies that a culture has, and it really exists to be read. And the word monster is actually related to the, it comes from the words monstrare, which means to show, and monere, which means warning or portend. So it signifies something that it's other than itself. And Cohen says that the monster's body is pure culture. So this is kind of the big idea is that the monster is embodying these things that a culture is thinking, I think is a good way to to go about analyzing it. And one example that could be thought of this is the Jersey Devil. So the Jersey Devil is said was born in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey in 1735. And 
This child was born to Mother Leeds, who was a woman that lived in the Pine Barrens, and it was her 13th child. And upon being born, it actually turned into the Jersey Devil, which, if you don't know, is... I mean, it looks a lot like the devil. It's got hooves, a goat's head, wings, and a forked tail. And according to the folklore, Mother Leeds was actually a witch, and the father was the devil himself. And so, if you're going by this first thesis, what are you going to do about this? You look at the culture it was born from. You know, 1735 New England, not purely the the Puritan time that was a little bit earlier than that where especially you know the Salem witch trials arose from but I mean 1735 pretty starchly Christian religious fears of the devil and witchcraft so what this is is it's incorporating these 18th century fears of witchcraft and the devil that were present in New England so The monster's body itself is a text to be read about the culture that it's coming from. That's thesis number one. Thesis number two is that the monster always escapes. The way that I like to think about this thesis is that the monster itself is a historical shapeshifter. In that it changes form over space and time and it morphs to fit itself into the cultural context that it's fitting into. So that's kind of what this thesis that the monster always escapes is, is that it's always going to change form. And you actually see that in the way that people in the United States are afraid of other cultures. That's one thing. It's We always have this enemy, but it's always changing form, right? Like it was the British at the very beginning of, you know, American history and then eventually it turned into, you know, the. I mean, this was 200 years, but it turned into the Russians in the 80s. And then in the 90s, it was, you know, prim- primarily like Afghanistan, I guess. And then it turned it more into just the Middle East as a whole. But And you can see this changing through like movies themselves, especially like action movies. The monster is actually the the cultural other, and it keeps on shift, shifting form, and it's kind of indicates that there's something inherent about our culture that makes us need to monstrosize a cultural other. And that's basically kind of this big concept is that the other, whether it's the racial other, the sexual other, the political other, and I'll get into this more later, that is what's turned into the monster. And this is plays into what Foucault was talking about is that he said that monstrosity is always defined by what is not monstrous. So the cultural norm dictates what is actually going to be a monster. And that's why I that's why I say that the monster is not born a monster, it's made a monster. And so they're they're constructed. That's what monsters are. They're they're not naturally monsters. They're constructed monsters. And Cohen says that the monster, its threat is in its propensity to shift, and it turns immaterial and vanishes. He he uses the example of Yeti footprints, which I think is a, a kind of great metaphor for this thesis. 
And within his discussion of this particular concept, he talks about how the way that monsters are constructed falls into the way that they're born in the first place. And so he uses the example of Dracula over three different forms. First being Bram Stoker's Dracula, who has this kind of compelling sexuality. And he kind of makes the um, inference that he was, he thought that Stoker was dealing with some repressed homosexuality and that it was based off of a man named Henry Irving, who was one of the people that he kind of like looked up to. And I, I had never really heard about this with St- Bram Stoker, but when I was looking into it on the internet is, yeah, there's some, some academics have made the claim that, you know, Bram Stoker might've been uh, dealing with some repressed homosexuality and that he actually transferred it onto his uh, monster in his book, which is quite interesting. And then there's Nosferatu, which was kind of boiling within the face of fascism. And it came to the surface with these depictions of plague and bodily corruption. And then finally, Francis Ford uh, Coppola, or Coppola, however you want to say it, um, he was talking about how there's a subtext of of the AIDS crisis in his depiction of Dracula, and it just so happens that Coppola was making a documentary about AIDS while he also made Dracula. So that's kind of a way of actually implementing these theories into reading the specific instance where they come from. And that is one of the, the main tenets of folklore and the academic study of folklore is you have to look at the context, right? So that's thesis number two. Thesis number three is that the monster is a harbinger of a category crisis. And this one is really interesting because he's basically saying that the monster's body refuses to be put into an existing structure. And I'm going to read you off a quote that comes from a film critic talking about Alien and the, the alien from that movie of the same title. He says that the alien is a Linnaean nightmare, defying every natural law of evolution. By turns bivalve, crustacean, reptilian, and humanoid, it seems capable of lying dormant within its egg indefinitely. It sheds its skin like a snake, its carapace like an arthropod. It deposits its young into other species like a wasp. It responds according to Lamarckian and Darwinian principles. So kind of what what he's saying is that the, the monster is refusing to fit into these existing forms and structures that we have created. And that's why they're monster sizes, that they don't fit into our idea and our framework of what is natural and what is normal. And to put this into, um, you know, kind of a more academic concept, it's basically the, the monster is resisting classification into these hierarchical forms and it's breaking down binary oppositions. Okay. So it's not this or that it's something completely new or other. And Cohen has this great quote. He says, Where the monster lives is on the edge of the hermeneutic circle, inviting to explore new spirals, new interconnected methods of perceiving the world. 
So that's what the monster really does is it's getting us to try and, you know, explore new ideas and think about new methods and new ways of looking at existence. And that is why the monster is monster in the first place, because it's not, uh, you know, fitting into the things that we've already thought. It's breaking apart this logic and introducing us to a new way of thinking. So thesis number three is one of my favorites. Super interesting. Thesis number four is that the monster dwells at the gates of difference. And he's, he basically breaks down the way that the monster is differentiated or othered. It tends to be cultural, political, racial, economic, and sexual. So that's his point is that the, the monster is this different being. And it, te- it tends to fall into these different categories. So he talks about how in medieval France, during the Crusades, after the, 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 during the Crusades, they celebrated by turning the Muslims into demonic creatures. Okay, so that's co- a cultural way. Um, and then the, the Nazis did similar things to the Jews. They had these monstrous depictions of them in their propaganda. And likewise, in American history... The Native Americans were displayed as savages. So that's what a way that the the cultural other is turned into a monster. And then he talks about how political figures undergo what he calls an Ovidian metamorphosis, like Vlad Tepish and Richard III. And uh, you know, Vlad Tepish was the the Romanian ruler who was eventually turned into the Dracula character. He was called Vlad Dracula. And then Richard III, which I just got done reading the Richard III, so this is kind of on my mind. You know, he is, his monstrosity is linked, especially in the Shakespeare text, and you can look at other historical instances of this, by the fact that he had a physical deformity. So um, that's a way that political others are monstrosized. And sexuality fits into this, especially with women. He has a great quote where he talks about how women who overstep their boundary roles or their gender roles are running the risk of becoming a Scylla or a weird sister, a Lilith or a Gorgon, which are some examples of the monstrous woman in mythology and literature. So deviant sexuality is susceptible to monsterization and then race is also a part of monster culture and is the catalyst to creating these monsters for example in the greek myth of phaeton the ethiopians were said to be black because they were too close to the passing sun dark skin was associated with the fires of hell from my time in utah i also know that this is part of mormon folklore that um, black people were descendants of Cain. And I was asking my girlfriend about this and she said, my, my girlfriend is ex Mormon. She said that Mormons have this belief that in the previous world, the black people were like on the fence between being on good or evil side. And so they were able to come to earth, but they had to have black skin to, to mark that they weren't, you know, fully good. So that's a pretty, you know, a uh, pretty lucid example of religious othering. 
especially in a racial concept context. And then narratives of miscegenation, which is um, basically interracial, um, you know, children and and interracial, uh, you know, sexual acts. Basically, he talks about Elizabethan fears uh, of of blackamoors and a particular Queen Elizabeth herself being afraid of you know Moorish people, which is articulated in the play Othello. Cohen kind of summarizes this thesis by saying that by revealing that difference is arbitrary, potentially free-floating, mutable rather than essential, the monster threatens to destroy not just individual members of society, but the very cultural apparatus through which individuality is constituted and allowed. So that's this big idea, right? That this the difference that the monster represents is this thing that threatens the cultural norms but from my perspective the monster is great in doing that we have to we have to evaluate our assumptions and not just take everything that we're living for granted thesis five is that the monster polices the borders of the possible and cohen says from its stance at the limits of knowing the monster stands as a warning against exploration of uncertain dementies And he uses the example of the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park declaring that curiosity is more often punished than rewarded. So when you step outside of these borders that the monsters are policing, you run the risk of being attacked by some kind of monstrous border patrol. Which, I mean, you can read between the lines and figure out the, the political metaphor of you know, Mexico and America that is existing there. And he talks about the, the, the myth, the story of Lycaon from Ovid's Metamorphosis. And Lycaon was born from the blood of the primeval giants that were trying to wrench Olympus from the gods. And he attempted to kill Jupiter, who ends up turning him into a lupine form. Basically, in this story, the the world is just going horrible. It's one of the, the stories of, you know, the Golden Age and the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and the deterioration of mankind. And Jupiter comes down to look at the world and what's going on. And he visits Lycaon, who he tries to kill Jupiter. He also feeds him human flesh. And Jupiter is privy to his plan and he turns Lycaon into a wolf. This is one of the original werewolf stories. And then this is one of these clear instances where Lycaon's body turns into a text that's being ready to read. He's gone into his, you know, animalistic urges. He's no longer man. He's a beast. And so it's also policing these um, practices such as cannibalism and murder, right? Which is good, obviously. But it's it's a... it's incorporating cultural values into the story. And so he says that monsters are a double narrative, one that describes how the monster came to be and one detailing the cultural use that the monster serves. So on the one hand, it's describing how Lycaon actually became, you know, this, this wolf king. And it also details, uh, you know, the cultural use, which is to police these practices. Another great quote that Cohen has 
in this thesis, he says that the monster is an ally of the Foucaultian panopticon. And uh, the panopticon was a, a concept, actually was from the philosopher Jeremy Bentham, but popularized a lot by Foucault. And uh, basically what it is, is it's a, a prison where the, the guards can see the prisoners, but the prisoners can't see the guards. And the prisoners will never know whether they're being watched or not. And the monsters, they're existing to enforce these, these laws of exogamy. You know, things like incest and interracial marriage that, you know, might be monstercized in specific cultures. We can see that through Caliban and the Tempest. We can see that in the Nephilim of the Bible, the giants that came and, you know, um, had sex with the women of Earth. King Kong or the alien from Alien dripping with KY jelly. And also the alien was played by um, a Maasai tribesman. And that added to the the other of this creature, right? And he says that the monster is transgressive. It's too sexual. It's perversely erotic. It's a lawbreaker. And the monster embodies everything that must be exiled or destroyed. And, you know, once you... I mean, for me, when you're... There's certain certain things like incest and, and cannibalism and murder are things that we should have monsters to represent the, the downfalls of. But things like interracial marriage and um, homosexuality should be things that are absolutely not monstercized. But still, they are because that's one of these prevalent things in a lot of our culture. But that's one of, you know, we have to evaluate these assumptions. We have to say, why do we believe this? How could possibly be, uh, you know, how, how could cannibalism and interracial marriage be anywhere close to being on the same grounds? Because, of course, they're not, right? Okay, so thesis six is that fear of the monster is really a kind of desire. He says that the, the monster is simultaneously repulsive and attractive and that this accounts for its continued popularity and he talks about how we we have these fantasies right which remember think back to the beginning i talked about the fantasies being part of uh what creates the monster and so we have these fantasies of aggression and domination that are allowed into this liminal space of storytelling especially and that's one of the things that is popular about you know, today it's movies. In the ancient world, it was, you know, the monsters of the Odyssey. Is that we know that at a certain point, it's going to come to an end, right? Um, Stephen King's book is going to end and the monster will be destroyed. So the closer we are to the finish, the closer we are to liberation from the monsters. And the monster itself, it functions as an alter ego or projection of the other. Uh, and we can see this in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So he says the monster lurks somewhere between fear and attraction. And I mean, there's a lot of there, there's a lot of Freudian ideas going on here, right? And uh, I'm going to get to Freud here after the seventh thesis, but I find this really interesting. The fear is actually a kind of desire. Thesis six, and then finally. To wrap up our discussion of Cohen, thesis seven is that the monster stands at the threshold of becoming, and he supplies 
a, a great quote from Shakespeare's The Tempest when, Cal, uh, when Prospero says of Calban that this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. And the point here is that monsters are our children. We create them. They can be pushed back. They can be hidden at the, end of the edges of the world, but they'll always return. And what they do is that they ask us to think about how we perceive our world, to reevaluate our cultural assumptions, especially regarding race, gender, sexuality, and our perception of difference. So Thesis 7 kind of wraps everything up, but that's, uh, that's, that's all of Cohen's seven theses. And that's really the jumping off, off point from mon, you know, monster studies as a recognized discipline. But it had earlier beginnings. So we'll get into let's get into that. In 1919, Sigmund Freud published his essay, The Uncanny. And the uncanny is one of the, the building blocks of monster theory. And to develop his concept of the uncanny, Freud, he sort of contrasted these two different German words, heimlich and unheimlich. And I don't speak German, so hopefully I'm pronouncing those right. I looked up on the internet. I thought it would be unheimlich, but it's apparently unheimlich. Um, but I don't know. So if anybody is proficient in German, they can definitely reach me out and tell me that I'm pronouncing this wrong. But... Really, the meaning of these words is what matters, especially their English meaning of the words, because this is an English-speaking podcast. <laughs> so, Heimlich is what is agreeable and familiar, and Unheimlich is its opposite. It's what is uh, concealed and kept out of sight. So, Uncanny is basically the Unheimlich, and it's what's strangely familiar. And he says that the basically... Mo- monsters are uncanny and that they're strangely familiar and he takes it a bit further he says that the unheimlich is what should have remained secret and hidden but has come to light and he uses the example of seeing repeated numbers which is actually um, uh, one of the things that Jung incorporated into his concept of the synchronicity and coincidentally, while I was writing this, you know, passage in, in my notes that I have written down for this podcast, it was one eleven, and it's actually 3.33 right now, which is extremely uncanny. I don't know what's going on. I promise I didn't plan it out. It just happened. <laughs> um, another, so that's, that's Freud's uncanny. And in the 1970s, Masahiro Mori came up with his concept of the Uncanny Valley. And what the Uncanny Valley is, is it's basically as robots appear more human-like, they become more appealing, but only to a certain point. And that certain point is when the Uncanny Valley comes into play. And you can think about this as a graph where the, the, the line is going up, as robots become more human-like, and then at a certain point, it just dips. And then it goes back up. But So there's this, this one valley of human-like robots that give us this feeling of unease. And I've read some things about the Uncanny Valley is that this is a, a biological response, I guess, that, that humans had to something that they are seeing in their environment. 
in, in ancient times. And um, what that is, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's, um, you know, other humanoids, Australopithecines, uh, Neanderthals, stuff like that. But um, this concept of the, of the uncanny valley is, is really popular, especially in monster theory. And then Noel Carroll or Noel Carroll, I'm not sure how to pronounce his first name, he came up with uh, two ways where, hum- where monsters are created, and that's fusion and fission. And he came up with this theory in an essay called Fantastic Biologies and the Structures of Horrific Imagery. And what fusion is, is it's when creatures transgress categorical distinctions such as inside-outside, living-dead, insect human and flesh machine and that can be seen in mummies vampires ghosts zombies freddy from uh, a nightmare on elm street those are all breaking this this distinction between living and dead so the living dead are one of the most popular types of monsters and uh you know we can we can see some of uh, Cohen's theories being incorporated there too, I think, um, especially with the the breakdown of binary oppositions, right? And Frankenstein is a good example of this fusion figure because it's it has electricity as well as you know uh, the the normal, I guess you could say, human body. It's comprised of different brains. And haunted houses are also a, a good example of this fusion because they're animate and inanimate fused into one. And so that's what, what Carol is trying to do is come up with ways that monsters are actually created and he came up with fusion and fission, which is when these contradictory elements are infused over different metaphysically related entities, such as werewolves or doppelgangers. So this is when these contradictory um, aspects of a being are spread out and he says that they're either done through space or time so for example a werewolf is violating these categorical distinctions between humans and wolves and it's doing so at different times it's usually you know a human and then it turns into this this human wolf so that's what that's what fusion is it's when these elements are created over space or time in in one entity that is kind of split into two where it could be doppelgangers would be existing as basically one person in two different times and that's uh that's basically what dr jekyll and mr hyde is right so what are we supposed to do with all this information um i think we've hit on a lot of this but basically you know monster theory it gives us a way to read monsters it's a method at looking at ourselves and our societies and basically, we have to question what is going on beneath the surface when we see these these monsters, these creatures coming up. It's a way of, uh, you know, evaluating what are we saying about ourselves. You know, so why why is Bigfoot so popular? Well, maybe it's a comment about um, ecological destruction. Why are vampires popular? Well, maybe they were examples of, you know, our fear of Eastern Europeans or the fear of the afterlife. And it questions what we think about these categorical, categorical distinctions that we've came up with. And Stephen T. Asma, in his essay, Monsters in the Mor- Moral Imagination, 
he has this great quote that I think that sums it all up. He says, when we embrace difference, the monster will vanish. And that's kind of what I want to leave you with is that the differences that we see in each other is what creates these monsters. And when we embrace that difference, the monster is going to go away. And we tend to monstercize the other. And when those differences are embraced, we will have a world without monsters. Thanks for listening to another episode of Mythic Existence. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I have pages for Mythic Existence on both of those platforms. And you can follow my personal pages, which are at Archaic Futurism on Instagram and at The Folklord on Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next week.